All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 237 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and my blood is in high demand. Hanging out with vampires. I wish I was hanging out with vampires. Actually, scratch that. I'd be awful. I'd just be fodder, wouldn't I? I wouldn't do anything exciting. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be star. You'd be the stay-at-home vampire. (laughs) That would be me, yeah. (laughs) Just doing all the cleaning. Oh, it's rubbish being a vampire. (laughs) No, but my blood type is is very rare. I don't wish to boast, but my blood type is very rare. The second rarest that there is. Less than 2% of the population have my blood type wow and yeah so they're on they're on the hunt for it the one that they really need because i went and gave blood on friday if you can please do they're gagging for it <laughs> they are like vampires but vampires that do good mm. the one that they really need is o negative because that can be accepted by every single person which is amazing and then b negative which is me lols <laughs> pessimism <laughs> that is second uh, on their list and she was like oh you've not been for a while i don't know how you've slipped through the net as she took my blood give blood if you can Good for you mick Thanks. i can't go anymore i'm really disappointed because i used to go quite a lot i used to, uh, I used to actively enjoy going from the buzz I and got, the smug yeah <laughs> and the smug that i got from it and the steak that i awarded myself afterwards but um since I got um, Graves' disease i can't go anymore because i have to be two years clear of my medication 
I got a PB. I drained a pint in six minutes, right? And that is really impressive because I am also notoriously tricky, notorious within my own brain, clearly, but also on my sheet, I have got very hard veins to access. They're very thin mm. and they're very, very under mm. the surface. The longest it took me once was 29 and a half minutes. And if it's longer than half an hour, they can't take it. And I was like, come on, squeezing the little rubber ball like mad. But the nurse, I was like, this is incredible. This is so fast. And she went, I don't mean to boast, but I, I am really good with the tricky <laughs> veins. And yours were particularly tricky. And I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> I used to go with my colleagues when I was a civil servant. We'd like go out on a lunch break and, and we'd go to the little um, caravan down near Waterloo. We had a competition once, me and my colleague Maya, <laughs> to see who could drain their pint the fastest. And uh, yeah, I fainted afterwards. So. <laughs> so <laughs> Not, not always the best thing to do. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'm kind of upset with myself for being this excited by buying a new Hoover. What is it, Hannah? Is it a Henry? It's actually a Hoover. I am using that term correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one that's like special pet stuff. Because I have like one of those, this is so tedious, but I have <laughs> one of those like Vax ones that are supposed to be really great, but they get stuffed up with pet hair within about the first 20 seconds of using it and this one apparently just like charges through your house so even though it turned up at my front doorstep at seven o'clock this morning i was still quite excited have you used it already no okay well how i hope it doesn't resisted? disappoint yeah how have you managed to hold back well, it's what i'm gonna do when i finish work okay. when i finish work today i'm gonna have a big hoover i thought i'd give joan a little break between me coughing and sneezing all day to be turning on this thing that could probably suck her into it. <laughs> she needs like a little time to recover. There are various videos on YouTube of cats being hoovered, like cats who genuinely oh. love like the hoover attachment. I'm doing the movements, listener. The hoover attachment, and you can see how often I hoover because they're terrible. Yeah. They really love it. They love being hoovered. Any cat I've ever known, no. not even just owned, but known is like, Get that fucking thing away from me. That monster, yeah. that noisy monster. My old cat, yeah. Mark, used to wait till it was turned off and then she'd go and attack it, which was very funny. Frank was like that. Yeah. Frank was like, oh, it's it's asleep. <laughs> yeah, kill get it. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I both need and I'm simultaneously afraid of answers. And that is a Happy Valley reference. I need to know, but I don't want to know. When I spoke to her, I just said I forgot how much it gives me belly. So stressful. <laughs> so tense. I had to, after I watched it, I had to read the news for a little bit of light relief. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lie. Because I knew this much back before Christmas and I was just desperate to talk to anyone about it, but I couldn't because I hadn't been on the telly. But so I got to talk to Sally Wainwright about it and I was like, you know, Claire, I've always, I've always had nerves about Claire. But also the fact that we know it's definitively no, the last that's what's, season. That's what's killing me, is uh-huh. what she said in the interview last week. If you haven't listened to it, listeners, I suggest you go and you listen should. to it now. Coming up, I talked to actor Kate O'Flynn about Everyone Else Burns, a new sitcom about a family in a religious cult, which starts on Channel 4 on Monday. I love Kate O'Flynn. I'm so excited for this. We had a little chat about Dr. Pape as well. Mm. Peeps. Mm. Peeps. <laughs> In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to former world number five and legendary pundit Joe Jury about the Australian Open. 
and in rated or dated. I've made a spliff. I've bought some blackberries <laughs> from a dude at the side of the road. So let's tuck into indie black comedy, The Good Girl. Hannah, please go and throw those blackberries away. <laughs> <laughs> but first, no awards, please. We're women. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where looking at the news is only marginally preferable to rolling around in someone else's shit and getting a little bit of it in your mouth. (laughs) Oh, yuck. I mean, that one of our former chancellors of 2022, one of like the eight that had that role for a while, has had to be forced to cough up millions in unpaid taxes while huge swathes of the population struggle to even get by. Leaves a really bad fucking taste, doesn't it? talk to me about it how did he not pay taxes how did he get away with that and we are obviously talking about nadim zahawi we are yeah he just hadn't he's had to be investigated and now he's going to pay them to settle the tax dispute that sounds dodgy why is he still a politician like why why does he still hold office jen i don't know if you've heard of the conservative party oh right but yeah uh, i think that goes a long way to explaining okay sorry my bad Hey, Mick. Are you going to cheer me up? <laughs> not really, no. Have you ever wondered what the police get up to when they're not ineffectively investigating serious sexual assaults? They're committing them, Jen. That's what they're doing. They are indeed. Fucking hell. <sighs> um, but anyway, according to new research conducted by the Runnymede Trust, the UK's independent race equality think tank, freedom of information requests made to 45 police forces showed that there are... 979 police officers operating in UK schools. Schools? Schools, Mickey. I know. That number is 43% higher than previous figures suggest. Schools? (laughs) Schools? Schools. Additionally, there are plans to increase that number of safer schools officers or their police force-based equivalents by a further 7%, the Trust said. Now... I guess bad things do sadly happen to kids, right? So, fair enough? Fair enough? Well, do you want to guess where the majority of those officers are based, Mick? Well, I would guess London. And you would be right to guess London. Half of them are based in London. More specifically, the research found that they were more likely to be based in areas with higher numbers of eligibility for free school meals and that this figure coincidentally correlates with higher numbers of kids from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. Who'd have thunk it, hey? I know. It's almost as if we criminalise poverty and ethnic minority status in this country, isn't it? Because those groups do so well from the legal system, almost universally, right? Yeah, yeah. You will, of course, remember the case of Child Q, the 15-year-old black girl who was strip-searched at her school in Hackney while she was on her period because she was accused of smelling of cannabis, the details of which emerged last year. To me, it's bad enough that a kid was removed from a mock exam because they were accused by one person of smelling of weed, but the other factors undeniably make it worse. I think you can change the top of that from to me to to most people, hopefully. to them. That's just awful. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's terrible. Why the fuck was a kid removed from, a, from an exam for that? I know it's a mock exam, but they are important. Like, mm. you would think someone would be like, should we just wait until after the exam is finished? Totally. But no. 
Child Q is not alone here. In fact, 58% of all strip searches by the Metropolitan Police between 2018 and 2020 were carried out on black boys. The Metropolitan Police? Oh, Jen, this seems very strange. It feels it does, doesn't it? It feels unlikely, apart from being they're very usually, likely. So, no, they're not. Uh, <laughs> the report raises concerns about the lack of formal consultation around the role or scope of police officers in schools and a system that, and I quote, feeds the school-to-prison pipeline, whereby disciplinary issues that might have been resolved in-house, so to speak, are escalated unnecessarily, resulting in the worst possible outcomes for children and the adults they go on to become. What's more, the report argues that there is no evidence that the presence of police in schools successfully reduces youth violence. So perhaps we have to ask ourselves whose safety we are really concerned with here. Or if it's even a matter of safety or just like looking like you're doing something. I don't I don't know. I mean, it is easier, isn't it? Like harassing children is easier than, I don't know, investigating and prosecuting rape cases for example like rape cases within the actual police force like david carrick yeah <laughs> those ones as well yeah yeah, yeah tricky absolutely. it is tricky yeah oh i'm afraid listeners that it doesn't get any cheerier it is hardly news to mention that the nhs is drowning it's been drowning for ages the front line is buckling more than seven million people are waiting for nhs treatment in england people are dying as Labour leader Keir Starmer said in an article for the Sunday Telegraph, uh, sorry, what now? The, Sun- the Sunday Telegraph? Okay. The idea that our NHS is still the envy of the world is, quote, plainly wrong, and the situation for patients is intolerable and dangerous. I still think the NHS is incredible. I still think bits of it work brilliantly, which is why it's so very worth saving. And I do still think it's the envy of a lot of the world, you know, like the millions of people in the USA that can't afford health insurance and so are basically, to use a technical term, fucked. But yes, a broken NHS means a lot of people in the UK are also fucked. And I very much include NHS staff not being paid enough to survive in that. Solidarity with the striking nurses and paramedics who are walking out about paying conditions, yeah, but also precisely because those conditions mean people are dying. Mm. Okay, so back to Keir Starmer, the Telegraph and Labour's vision for the health service. Reform or die is Starmer's big take-home message, and you know what? Fair dues. But when it came to how that reform would look, there was also a smattering of unfair don'ts, mainly laid at the doors of GPs. Less triage, more self-referral, says Starmer, and a lot of GPs have taken umbrage with this, with, I think, decent reason. Triage is a skill, rather than Starmer's chosen term, bureaucratic nonsense. And while, yet, there is already an aspect of self-referral in place for most people trying to see a GP, ditching triage in favour of self-referral is going to place those with serious issues among the worried well. With the added shitter that for, say, depression, which I have experience of, the energy to be able to self-refer just isn't there. British Medical Association Chair Professor Philip Banfield estimates NHS waiting lists will balloon to more than 10 million overnight if patients self-refer to specialists and put even more vulnerable people in even more danger. It's basically be your own GP. And given that with those choose-your-own-adventure books, I always ended up dead in a cave by choice three, I am not liking my chances. (laughs) 
Starmer's article comes after Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streetin laid out his plans for NHS GPs in an interview with the Times. Um, again, sorry, the right-wing Times, okay, in early January, and also said in a recent iPaper interview that the NHS is, quote, driven by provider interest, producer interest, and not by patient interest. I've seen that quoted a lot as him saying that it's run for doctors, not for patients, but that's not exactly what he said. However, from what I've read and listened to from GPs and medical professionals about this, it seems West Street doesn't understand general practice, doesn't understand how the GP system works. Now, do I understand general practice, the GP system? Not comprehensively, no. But then I'm not health secretary in waiting, wanting to completely overhaul the system and telling overworked, exhausted doctors they're not working hard enough. Nor... Have I ever taken a substantial donation from hedge fund boss John Armitage, who has well-documented huge interests in privatised healthcare? Here's looking at you, Wes. Look, can I get an appointment to see a doctor? Not on your Nelly. I'm beaten by the 8am clamour every time, and it's not even over the phone, it's online. When I have been able to see a doctor in the past, have I been faced with a gatekeeper? Yep, it's certainly felt that way now and again. Do I, as a long-term Labour voter, think we should be shitting on doctors? No. It feels like a mad Tory move, particularly when GPs are leaving in swathes. Young GPs don't want to take over practices and we desperately need more of them. And Labour knows that because some props to Starmer. He also said, there is no solution that doesn't involve expanding the workforce. That's why I've committed to doubling the number of graduating doctors and district nurses and providing thousands more training placements for nurses, midwives and health visitors. Yes, this and also maybe show a bit of solidarity with the unions instead of ordering your MPs not to join strike pickets, Mr. Labour leader, Mr. Labour leader. But that is a whole other kettle of fish shit. I would say the point about the um, the Telegraph and the Times, I get it. Mm, yeah, I do. I wonder if what they're trying to do is appeal to swing voters who I think the idea that a swing voter reads the Telegraph is to me like absolutely fucking bonkers because they are so crazy. But the Times, I mm. don't think, you know, I don't see that as a total waste of time. I can see why you're trying to get in there. Yeah, I agree because I guess they might feel like talking to left-wing press would be preaching to the converted, but exactly. I, I am not converted on their plans. So yeah. I think it should also have been to other publications, not the no, Telegraph. No, I agree. I th- I think they're I think they're probably sort of trying to hedge their bets a little bit there. But um and I guess maybe the content of some of what they've said is more aimed at that audience in order to be like, Hey, we're not loony lefties, come on in. But like yeah, I can see I can see your concerns. Look, the system's fucked, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, one of the points that you've made to me when we've talked about this and which I agree with is I think we need to see the colour of your money Mm -hmm. Labour Party I think we need to see I completely understand the idea that the the amount of money we have you know we're we're in a fucking terrible situation at the moment and I don't think it's going to get better any time in the immediate future if you are a Labour Party thinking you might inherit the shit show that is our economic situation at the moment possibly you're thinking okay how can we use what we have and make the system work better. Like, if there's a finite level of resource, how can we get the best out of that resource? I don't think that's an unreasonable thing 
to, to no, you know, to work not. within those parameters. But I would like to know what money are they saying they're going to give the NHS? Like, tell me what you're going to do. Well, Rachel Reeves, who is Shadow Chancellor, said that money from economic growth would be put towards the health service, but she wouldn't but where's commit. The growth? Yeah, but she wouldn't commit to any other sort of budgetary yeah. increase. Which, again, doesn't feel like a Labour move. No. So where's that, you know, where's the growth coming from? Has anyone told us where the growth's coming from? Has anyone told us what that projected growth is? Like, if you're telling me that's what's going to fund all this stuff, I need to know what that's going to be. Voters need to know what that's going to be. Because the poll point of the Tory party is they have, year on year, increased the amount of money that the NHS is being given. That's not a lie. That is that you know, that is factually correct, but it hasn't kept pace with the increases mm. that would have been needed for it just to stand still. Yeah. Just for the service to stay where it was. They've not kept pace with that. So that's before, you know, you even think about like the crazy inflation of, of prices of almost everything over the last few years so that money needs to go up it needs to go up a lot it can't just it can't just remain the same it needs to go up a lot so they need to tell us yeah we need to see the color of their money definitely because you know i don't think it's cynical i think it's kind of realistic to look at what the Tory party have done over the past 10 12 years and see it as deliberate they're undercutting the nhs they're not keeping up with the stuff that they needed to to help it even to stand still because they want to privatize a lot more of it and it feels like Labour has got similar intentions. And whether that's because they feel forced into a corner now, because anything they do is going to take a whole load of time to get back to anywhere near square one, like 10 years to undo mm. the damage already done. But it feels half-baked. It doesn't It doesn't feel like a Labour approach to NHS to me. And maybe that's my naivety and wishing things were different because it doesn't feel like there's a Labour approach to the unions anymore. It doesn't feel like there's Labour approach to a lot of stuff anymore. And I realise they have to shift to try to win. I'm not an idiot. But at what cost, I guess? Oh, it's tricky. It's very, very tricky. Mm. Mick, would you like some good-ish news? I'll take good-ish. I'll take, <laughs> I'll take it. I'd like to say it was a Tory revolution, but, well, see also the rest of this Bush Telegraph. Um, Bright blue. (laughs) Conservative think tank. Oh, horrible name. Uh, (laughs) Has published a report setting out the need for a minimum income. I don't even understand why it's called bright blue. (laughs) Because they're blue, but they're not cunts. I don't know. Maybe that's the point. They seem very bright, a lot of them either, though, to be honest with you. No. It call- so this report, this is this is the goodish news. Uh, it calls for benchmarks for different types of households and suggests caps on benefits should be reviewed regularly to see if they still make sense amid cost of living increases. <laughs> That's just like it seems common sense, doesn't it? Really common sense. Why really have they had to have like stuff. a think tank about this? Like even just a little think over a cup of tea, you'd be like, well, that seems like a sensible thing to do, doesn't it? Even the current government know this because they did, in fact, uh, uprate benefits in line with inflation in the last budget. That's so true. even the fucking government know this. But anyway, whatever. There's, there's, there's more. Tell there me more about Bright Blue. A little bit more. 
Bright Blue also recommend a single digital platform for those receiving universal credit, which would process all benefits and grants available to working age adults. And if you've ever looked into grants available for yourself or someone else, you'll know what a mind bogglingly broad and piecemeal landscape this is. I hard agree that simplifying it could make a difference, a huge difference to low income households. I hard agree as well. But again, it doesn't feel like a genius was needed to come up with that idea. What if we put everything in one place so it's easy to find? You do really only need like 10 minutes Googling grants available to realise that that is a thing that needs (laughs) resolving. But anyway, thank you, Bright Blue. (laughs) The report comes as the Department for Work and Pensions considers a range of options in reforming the benefit system to encourage more people to return to work as part of a health and disability white paper. That feels ominous, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That feels like, oh, how do we get people who aren't fit to work? back to work and then tell them because they're not working we're not going to give them benefits there's a there's an air of sinister well they do have form don't they They i mean there's (laughs) precedence yeah Yeah. but i mean what i would say is one of the possible policies leaked to the press this week by i presume the tory administration is um because that's how they (laughs) that's how that's how they test the waters is that they might tell people who go back to work that they can still get their benefits even if they go back to work, which seems to me like, well, universal credit is already an in-work benefit, so that should already be happening to an extent. And then it doesn't make sense to me. Like, nothing about that makes sense to me, but whatever. I mean, I assume they're not going to keep them forever because otherwise what would be the point? Like, if the point is to get people back into work so that you can get more tax off them and, and make more money off them, you are going to want to take away those benefits at some point. God, imagine, Jen. Imagine Tory party if people paid their tax. Imagine. Imagine the Ooh. millions you could get from Nadine just one Zahawi. former chancellor. So we come full circle. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good news that all sides of the political spectrum acknowledge that the system is fucked <laughs> and that we need to do more. But it's only really good if those in power actually use it to inform policy. Sorry, Mick, I failed. I failed in my remit to find good news for you. It was very much on the ish side of the good-ish, wasn't it? Very little good, yeah. quite a lot of ish. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I, I'd like to dedicate this award to my cat, Clarkie, um, and to, to my neighbours <laughs> for finally inviting me to parties and... Oh man, I, I really wasn't expecting this. And indeed, as a woman, turns out I shouldn't be expecting an award. Well, certainly not the prestigious Artist of the Year award at this year's Brits anyway. The Brits scrapped their Best Male and Best Female awards last year in favour of gender-neutral prizes and Artist of the Year 2022 was bagged by Adele from a five-strong shortlist of nominees made up of three male artists and two female artists. Cut to 2023 and all five artists nominated for Artist of the Year are men. Inclusivity is brilliant. Letting non-binary folk get a look in is great. I am all for it. But a shortlist of five blokes isn't very inclusive, is it? In fact, this feels like a real blow for inclusivity. Now, 
I could be Pollyanna about it and say that who knows, maybe next year it'll all turn round and we'll have five female nominees or three female and two non-binary nominees. But to be honest, I don't feel very Pollyanna. Let me tell you for why. Firstly, because while men are still the default when it comes to being top of fucking everything, and they are, gender neutral probably isn't going to work. Sexism runs really deep. Maybe before taking the category away, ask why it was there in the first place. Which leads me to point two. The music industry is really fucking sexist. I know, I know, I bet you fell off your chair with the surprise. (laughs) The sad fact is that Brit Award voters, and it is worth pointing out that 48% of the 1,200 members are women, have a very small pool of female artists to choose from. And in a year when big stars like Adele and Dua Lipa were busy on tour, they've gone for male acts instead. But why is the pool so small? Well, less than 20% of acts signed by labels overall are female. Less than a fifth. I mean, yay for women consistently overperforming, but fuck me, it's knackering to have to do so in every sodding area of life. Music executive and researcher Vic Bain, that's Vic as in Vicky, told the BBC there are numerous barriers that make it more difficult for female acts. It's a stereotype from A&Rs and record labels, she said. It's more problematic for women to go on tour in those early years in their career. Women at some point tend to have responsibility for looking after family and that totally scuppers touring and the ability to focus on music. Sexism and discrimination is a massive problem. Just one incident can put a woman off and make them opt out. And there is an expectation for women to look incredibly beautiful. If they're not stunningly beautiful, it's just so much harder. Not exactly an even playing field, is it, Jen? I mean, that is true. If you look at, like, if you compare and contrast men in the music industry and women in the music industry, the standard for women is, like, in terms of their appearance, undeniably, like, insanely higher than men. Let's just look at the fact that Rod Stewart is seen as some sort of sex symbol. (laughs) Oh, Rod. Yeah, I was thinking about this because it was in the news recently, wasn't it? Emma Corrin recently said, you know, they wanted awards to be gender neutral in acting. And I can totally understand that if you don't identify with one gender or Mm -hmm. other, perhaps you feel that neither award caters for you and you're therefore excluded from the awards. I can understand that. I'm all for finding a way to make this work. But I don't think the answer is to say we make the awards gender neutral because I guarantee in acting, if you made the the Academy Award for best gender non-specific actor, a man would win it every fucking time mm. because roles for men are better. Yeah, oh, I I totally agree with you. And it's because we've not sorted out the foundations to mm. be able to yeah. change it. So yeah, it, yeah. when when they started, they didn't have the categories and, and for a lot of things, categories have been put in place when it was seen that women were being excluded that need hasn't gone away. We're not level yeah. now. You know, sexism isn't like, bye-bye, that's all sorted, which is why this isn't a way that's going to work. Or I don't think... It, I'd, I would love to be proven wrong. So, you know, we'll talk again in 2024 when the Brit Award nominations come out. But yeah, it just feels like in two years since this has happened, the nominees for Artist of the Year, there have been eight men and two women. Hello, Hannah here. 
I am joined by actor Kate O'Flynn. Thank you so much for joining us, Kate. Pleasure. I was going to say from the north, but I'm not sure you are in the north, are you? I'm not in the north, no. I was up for Christmas, but I'm back. I'm back in London. So I've been watching your new sitcom. And Kate, you are brilliant. <laughs> you you have the amazing ability to deliver a really zingy line in an unbelievably flat monotone. And it really, <laughs> really works. Can you give us a little summary of what Everyone Else Burns is? It's a comedy following a family set in an insular religious community in Manchester. I suppose the most important question to get out of the way is, if the rapture did actually happen now, Kate, how do you think you would fare? Oh, I don't know. As me or as Fiona, the character? Me, I think I'd fail miserably and probably be eternally damned. Fiona... I don't know. I think Fiona may be eternally damned as well. I'm not sure. She's, she's She's got a bit of things to sort out. She's got a few issues she's got to iron out in her life, I think. I don't know what it says about me or indeed this series or indeed Fiona, but I actually really hope that she is eternally damned because her life <laughs> would be way more exciting in the interim. <laughs> Have you got any church background at all? Did you go to church when you were younger? Uh, I did, you know, I'm Irish Catholic background, mum and dad are Irish Catholics, and I was brought up in the Catholic Church and have been on a long sabbatical since the age of 16, but I've not come back from. <laughs> yeah, that's almost identical to me, actually, really? to, to yeah. be honest. I was a little bit younger, but I, I had to be 16 before I was allowed to make the decision that I didn't want to go anymore, but I'd kind of given up the idea that any of it was true a lot sooner. Yes, the guilt stuck though. Still got that Catholic guilt. That's not going anywhere, but the rest of it didn't quite land with me. You know, my family is still practising and uh, get a lot of joy from it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's funny. I periodically have to go to church for something, you know, you know maybe a funeral or something. And I'm amazed at how sort of instinctively all those responses just come back to me. I haven't thought about saying them for... 30 yes. years and then suddenly I'm back I still remember all the words to the hymns that and the guilt are just wedged in there I'll never, I'll never get them out again and I totally you know I think I'm similar in that I go back every so often for those like funerals or weddings or whatever but there is a com- something really comforting about it and mm. the community there that I um yeah that that I get yeah yeah I actually I like the singing I do enjoy the yeah. idea of doing something as a group like that yeah yeah I mean I could play sport but I don't (laughs) (laughs) no me neither (laughs) on-screen husband Simon Bird I mean you came out better on the haircut front there your hair looks amazing (laughs) (laughs) yes we all got these amazing wigs I remember on the first day the first week we were filming the last episode so we had everyone in and in the green room like the holding area where you keep the actors before you go on set Everyone was coming in, having met for the first time with all these wigs on their heads. And everyone was just sort of anxiously going, what's the tone? They're really great looks. And uh, I called my wig Legolas because I just thought it had a kind of <laughs> mythical, yeah. mythical quality to it. Uh, and I really enjoyed being blonde for that. I was going to ask you that because actually it quite suits you. Sometimes when people are dark, it doesn't really suit their skin tone to be blonde. But actually, I thought you looked great with it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, although I don't know if I got the whole it's better being blonde thing just because Fiona's so quietly fraught that I don't know if I got that. Yeah. Um, the best. 
They are sort of a, a, a mishmash. I mean, we're not we're not really talking about anyone specific. There seems to be a bit of Christianity in there, a bit of doomsday cult in there, a tiny bit of Scientology. Fiona is yet another, really. You have a real array of characters that you've done. You've done so much great stuff that are just, you know, that just exudes personality. Even though she's exuding personality from behind a straitjacket, essentially. Yeah, I think that's what I really... When I read the scripts, it, I felt all the characters were really clear, clearly defined. And with Fiona, yeah, that straitjacket thing about her and maybe these repressed... There's a part of her that she's shut down and I think she's quite frustrated but not she's not done any self-reflection or examining of it. So these emotions can come out quite explosively in quite random situations. Mm. Because she's not dealt with any of it. Yeah. It's interesting because in a lot of ways it reminds me, I mean, all sitcoms are basically sort of the same sort of, not the same sort of thing at all, because obviously this is ridiculous. This is a doomsday cult. But the the idea that the mum of the family needs to find herself a bit is actually quite universal in, in sitcoms. You know, the the idea that, that that she is disappearing into her role a little bit and, and needs to find her own her own life and her own way. Yes, I haven't thought about that. But yeah, I agree. It is quite a universal thing, you know, and the fact that it's still it's still a, a theme. I don't know. Uh, maybe haven't moved on that much. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't got children, so um, I, I can't speak to that. But yeah, I think I think it's still for women a real sort of, you know, I am more than this. This person who does who is you know, yeah. What's your identity? Yeah, you know, and wanting to be more than your identity is not just mother, and I guess that's that's magnified in this community which is what's great about setting it in a community like this is that the stakes are so high so it's not just it's not even just life and death it's uh, eternal damnation <laughs> or so it's like everything matters yeah and in this community being a mother that is the primary role but of course she has other desires and uh, other talents um that she's internally battling yeah, you get some great scenes with uh, Morgana Robinson as well. I love Morgana. Oh she's my great. god, we've become, life. we've become friends for life. I just think she's she's so charismatic and just so brilliant and funny. Um, I loved doing scenes with her, and uh, yeah, our relationship on screen kind of moved off screen. I feel like uh, that's carried on. It's been great. Yeah. Oh, good, because I want to ask you about some other great women that you've worked with, because you have worked with some some real some yes. real giants of British acting. Yes, I'm go on. I want to start with uh, with with Dr. Pape who, uh, from No Offense. <laughs> yes. so, yes, oh yes. my word! I mean, she just just it, personality just seeping out of of every pore. You must have rubbed your hands together when you saw that. Well, it's funny because when I look back at that, I'd lit, I'd be only in a couple of scenes here and there in a few episodes and. I wouldn't really know anything about it. And then I'd be, there'd be rewrites happening all the time. And then suddenly, you know, Dr. Peep had triplets and that was just <laughs> kind of thrown in there. And I had a Greek husband and, you know, then I'd be seen the next day, whatever. Suddenly I'm smoking these vapes in every scene. So it was really entertaining and it was fun. I mean, all I remember from the original discussion about her was that she talked really fast. So yeah. that was that was what I had to grab onto and then just kind of riffed off off these amazing scenes that Paul Abbott had in his head, you know, and work great women like Joe Scanlon and uh, Alexandra Roach and Elaine Cassidy and 
yeah, it, that was a really great show. Again, that was really kind of singular and distinctive. Mm. And um, yeah, that's my kind of shiz, really. I really enjoy doing, being part of really creative worlds, I yeah. think. When I think about it now, like you say, she's not she's not in it that much, but she, I mean, she's such a steal, or you are such a steal stealer, depends which way you look at it. <laughs> the same with Paul Ritter. And like I say, when you're up against a personality like Joanna Scanlon, you know, it's just... I, we met her once and she was, she came on our podcast and she was just glorious. Isn't she? There was no facade to her. She was just. No, she's fabulous. Yeah. And such a brilliant actress having such an amazing time of it at the moment. And rightly so, because she's just, uh, she's just phenomenal. And she's a real gem as well. Yeah. It must be nice as well to do something that is not just set in the North, but, you know, sort of seeped in the North. Totally. And I think, and what I really liked about it is that it's not your normal, it's not your normal cop show, family business saga. It's showing Manchester in a different way. And I think Will, the director of photography and Nick Collett, the director, just have really shot Manchester and it looks really romantic and beautiful. And it's showing an unusual community in that city, which I haven't seen so much before, I don't think. Yeah. Um, That really attracted me to it. It, for such a long time, was ignored almost everything. I mean, in fact, any part, any part of the country outside of London just appeared to be ignored in dramas. And now there is so much good stuff that is set in the Midlands or, you know, Sally Wainwright totally. stuff all set in Yorkshire. And, yeah. You know, the regions are so characterful that, that, you know, there are really rich stories to be told there and, and a variety of stories and not just your cliched, gritty dramas. Mm. There's a whole variety within there. Yeah. I'll tell you someone else that I want to ask you about, which is uh, landscapers, which is also something oh, yeah. else you were amazing in. It's such, <laughs> it's, I mean, it took me ages to when I started watching it to think, what am I watching? This is <laughs> this is insane, but it's so brilliant yeah. at the same time. And Olivia Coleman just being just magnificent oh, as she always is. Yeah, it, that I remember watching it for the first time, going, "Wow, this is this is trippy. This is this is like this is a fever dream watching mm. this." And loving it, but getting to work with Olivia and David Thewlis. And I hadn't done anything on camera for ages and I hadn't had as good a role as that on camera before. And getting to just be opposite them in an interview setting, because obviously I was playing the detective, and just watch them sort of weave their magic. And I got to see it up close, what they were doing. And it was incredible. And they were so... Uh, generous they were such generous actors and the way they approached it their characters was quite different but came up with what they came up with was equally nuanced and kind of extraordinary they're pretty extraordinary performances I thought you do drama and you do comedy and actually you seem to sometimes do comedy in a drama is there is there is there a thing you prefer I don't really necessarily know I'm doing comedy in a drama (laughs) it's just when I see the eventual product to go oh that you know I've been going for something really serious and don't quite realize and I was quite nervous about doing a comedy series because I haven't done that before and it is a diff with everyone else burns and it is a different type of challenge and there are lots of comedians in it who approach who, who, who really know where the joke is land the joke and so it's there's quite a discipline to it which I had to learn but yeah I'm not always aware really when it's funny or yeah when it's and probably actually I'm funnier when I'm not trying to be, when yeah. I'm trying to be funny. 
funny at all. So if I think too hard about the jokes, I'll get self-conscious. So you've sort of got to catch me in my natural habitat, really. And like, don't don't spook me by um, saying when you need the joke to land because yeah. I won't be able to do it. Because yeah. yeah. like I say, you've actually got a really tough job with this because you can't do any, like with everyone else, Burns, because you can't do anything that's, you can't pull. You can't pull this sort of funny face. You can't clown in any way. You have to deliver that line how she would deliver that line, and yet still yes. make it funny, which is yeah. It, yes, I think the rules of it. It was quite liberating in a way because, as you say, there's only so much uh, space to have for. She never goes really big unless she's you know kind of lost her shit for want of a better phrase. And there's something quite comforting in that. You know, you've only got got a certain space to work in whereas if you have everything knowing how far you can go can be quite difficult yeah with Fiona she can only she's like this rigid she can only go so far yeah there's a there's a lovely bit where um I think it's in the second episode you get a couple of like I say real zingers in there you say you say something along the lines of one of one of the kids comes in and says what's happening and you say your father's just subjugating the family and uh, and then another bit I think when you said to Simon Bird if you're done disappointing your daughter I've got things to get on with and like I say yes. I mean I'm not even doing credit for the amount of flat monotone you get there it's incredible it really is it really entertained me I think that is intrinsically funny understatement is intrinsically funny the writing is so good and concise you know there was a real rhythm to it that was on the page and it was just trying to serve that yeah. really in the best way possible because yeah, Oliver, Ollie Taylor and Dylan Mapletoft, who wrote it, are just, they're, they're kind of uh, young geniuses, really. And and if ever a joke didn't work, they would be able to rewrite on the spot really quickly and come up with a better gag. And that's quite a skill. They were, yeah. So it was meeting the writing, really. Uh, and, and I know that that's what they wanted when I was approached for it. They were looking for a kind of deadpan. Yeah, I was just trying to give them what they wanted, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's a terrific job. This is, I suppose, the first time you've been sort of front and centre uh, uh, in a in a series. So you are front and centre in promotion. How's that been for you? Well, I, I don't know if it's my natural habitat, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, it's part of the job and just getting on with it. You know, I, I like to sort of sneak around behind the scenes, but, you know, that's not what's required. So it's all good. It's all good. I'm very about and I'm very happy to talk about this because I think it's really good and I'm really proud of it. Now I've spoken to so many great actresses recently who have amazing careers because they've been slow and steady. There's never been an enormous break or if there was it actually came relatively late in their career. I spoke I spoke to Ruth Sheen the other day um oh, who's never been as busy as as she is now. You know, yeah. in her sixties, it's 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 incredible. How's it been for you, sort of watching your career unfold? You know, are you a patient person? Are you happy now with how it's unfolding? I'm happy now with how it's going. I'm not a patient person, <laughs> and you know, I did fifteen years, pretty much solidly on, on stage, doing really creatively fulfilling work. Um, but I couldn't get arrested really on screen in terms of. I'd come in for bits here, bits mm. there, but it's. I think since landscape, getting landscapers, that world's opened up, and I'm really enjoying the ride. I mean, if I could have a career, I always think of Leslie Manville. You know what an incredible mm. career she has, and how she's just on a complete high and getting to work in all the different mediums, working with auteurs in film, you know, and then doing theatre and doing great series like Mum. You know, 
that's the dream really slow and steady ultimately works for me I think yeah but yeah it doesn't mean I'm patient yeah (laughs) yeah that is a good point you are not about to hit 40k and then not get any work which I think was a worry in the past touch wood I'm touching wood as we speak but um yeah and all those amazing actresses and I include Leslie Sharp in that um just bang that drum and just got through when it was much more difficult you know kept working when it was much more difficult over 40 to you know you know people will talk about you dropping off a cliff really like it's the end of your career the case now and it's because of actors like like the women you've mentioned um and I have enormous respect for them you know and their their toughness carving out a career in much uh more difficult a much more difficult climate Mm. than now yeah can I ask you what else you've got on the horizon have you got anything you're allowed to talk about Yes, I am play I am in a new Amazon series called My Lady Jane, which is about Lady Jane Grey, but it, it's based on some young adult novels about and the premise is Lady Jane Grey didn't die after nine nine days on the throne. What happened? And also some humans turn into animals. So again it's high oh, concept. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm in the thick of that at the moment. And uh yeah, it's fun. Tudor ish romp. Okay, um, how, how are you getting on with Tudor garb, or are you are you dressed as an animal? I'm I'm not dressed as an animal. I am. I'm, I'm a uh, tiny, tiny bit disappointed by that, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I know that would have been a better way to go. Actually, they've got real animals, but um, I would have quite liked to dress up as a squirrel or something. No, I'm. Just, uh, I've got the most incredible handmade costumes. I'm I'm regal in it. You know, I'm pretty powerful. So I have the corsets uh you know not the easiest things to wear throughout the day but the look is like the the craft that's gone into them is pretty fantastic and uh I'm kind of enjoying playing that regal status I'll be honest I don't you know start <laughs> playing playing maid so I'm really enjoying it <laughs> the, the power <laughs> yeah can you imagine you put on Tudor garb and the power just rushes straight to your head <laughs> totally totally Will we see you on stage again soon at all? Hopefully, yes, hopefully. There's something in the pipeline, but it's not set in stone yet. But, I I mean, I will always want to do stage. I love it. That is my first love. And uh, I feel like I didn't do any this year and I'm, uh, last year, and I'm kind of itching to get back on. Yeah. So we'll see. Oh, it's been, it's been so magnificent to have theatre back because, you know, for that whole, I suppose, a year on and off, it was just so... So bleak. Oh, it's hot. I mean, yeah, it was, I just, was really bleak. I just absolutely adore the theatre. I would do that more than more than anything else because it's it's again a bit going back to what what I was saying about church. It's a communal experience. You're not sitting at home watching it on the television. You're like, you know, you're part of it. Totally, you're in it together, and you're committing to this this story. And you know, you you can't be on your phones or get distracted, mm. and you. you the lights go dim and you're in and uh, I don't think that can be replicated um it is when it's good it's really really good I think oh it's been a pleasure to talk to you Kate thank you so much my pleasure you play ball like a girl go on do one kid Jenny off the blocks I'm delighted to be joined on the Zoom just as the 
flipping church bell ringing practice starts on a Wednesday night, and I can tell you it does go on for about an hour, so it will be the oh, backdrop but... to this entire interview. But anyway, former world number five and now pundit extraordinaire, Joe Dury. Joe, welcome back. I'm delighted to have you back on the podcast to talk to me about the Australian Open, which kicked off on Monday, but we're actually recording this the Wednesday before. So we'll be talking in relatively general terms, but who knows, by the time this goes out, it might be out of date already. At the point of recording, we don't know if Emma Raducanu is going to be playing or not. There's been a lot of talk about Raducanu since she won the US Open back in 2021. What do you think, Joe, is going on with her? Do you think it was a fluke? Do you think something's up or do you think we're expecting too much? Do you think that quick win just set our expectations way too high? I, I think the whole the whole thing was just so extraordinary to go really from being relatively unknown, apart really from people in the UK, we knew that she was going to be you know, good, up and coming, to win a Grand Slam suddenly from nowhere was madness really as she played you know brilliant tennis all the way through to win 10 matches like that not even lose a set you know when I talk to other tennis people we still kind of scratch our heads and think how did that happen so I was not at all surprised with what happened afterwards and all of you up last year she was trying to find herself suddenly being thrust into the limelight sponsors coming out here there and everywhere millions and millions being banded about you know just trying to cope with all of that let alone play tennis to me it would have been really really difficult so I'm glad she's got last year out of the way and I think this year she will make steady progress and it's so unfortunate that she twisted her ankle in Auckland a couple of weeks ago really really awful for her because I think she'd worked very hard physically she hadn't been on the court very much for a couple of months she'd worked hard because she'd had a wrist injury so I think the body's kind of ready now she's ready to sort of relaunch herself out there on the tour this year and and be interested to see what she can achieve we don't know what's going to happen with her yet but at the time of recording obviously Heather Watson didn't make it through qualifying which is a shame but we do still at this point have some hope because in the matches that happened today in qualifying again at the time of recording Jodie Burridge and Lily Miyazaki went through to the final round of qualifying how have they looked in those matches yeah actually Jodie's uh, really come on um, lately I've done a bit of work with her years ago and she's maturing nicely she's got a big game a world-class backhand, actually, and the forehand's improved, serve is much better, and she's quite dangerous. So, you know, she's got the weapons for the women's tour. She really has. And it's great to see Lily playing as well as she has winning matches. I mean, you know, a year ago, she she was playing 25,000, 60,000. She's trying to work her way up, and she's really done that very steadily. So deserves, you know, everything she gets as well. She works really hard. Is there anyone else that we should be watching out for other than the, the sort of usual suspects? Well, you know, a lot has been said about the two Czech uh, sisters, which, you know, I haven't practised their names enough. Friatova. It's terrible, isn't it? I've got to practice for my uh, commentating soon, I think, for those two. 
they are very much up and coming on the horizon i think you know it's great in tennis isn't it there's always somebody out there who is is, is going to make their mark um we've got you know the ones that we know for me coco golf i think it's going to be a very interesting mm. year for her i thought last year she might sneak a grand slam win but uh, iga shantek has been so good so really far ahead of everybody else but I just love the way she has matured and grown into herself, her expectations and everyone else's that were on her at such a young age. I mean, 14, 15. My goodness, she had a lot to cope with as well. So I just love the way she's talking now. Her game has matured, uh, much more consistent. So I would say, you know, really watch out for her. Well, I was going to ask you about Iga Sviantek. She's obviously top of the WTA rankings by a country mile. She's more than mm. double the points of second place on Jabir, having played fewer tournaments than anyone else in the top 10 as well. She's yeah. only made it as far as the semi-finals previously. And I think clay is her surface of, of choice. But I mean, she's just winning everything now, isn't she? She sort of yeah. broke through in the French Open. But she's the one really, isn't she? She is, and uh, you can see her game has moved on a couple of sort of standards up from everybody else's. She's not only a fantastic mover on the tennis court, but she can go from defence to attack so well now, and she uses her attack better. So it's a real problem for the other players of how to play her now. In the past, she might have sort of, uh, gone a little bit back from the baseline and, and you knew she could defend but she, she wouldn't really hit the winners but now anything short she pounces on it she is so sharp and quick I think that it was an interesting match with uh, Jess Pagula who beat her last week who really went after her second serve that might be still just a slight weakness in the Shiontek game so if the other players are watching, and they do, the coaches and word gets round, we could see other players trying to really step up and take that on. There are a couple of people that we're missing this year, of course. Ash Barty retired after winning last year yeah. at, the, at the top of her game. And she said she had yeah. nothing left to give tennis, which is fair enough, I guess, you know, but she's young and and yeah, like absolutely at the at the pinnacle of her career. What What did you make of that? I thought it, you know, it was both shocking and not at the same time because of the way um, she is as a person, so grounded. I quite understand what she's saying. She's got as much out of tennis as she wants to get out of it. You know, one Australia, perfect way to go out, really. She's very um, sort of satisfied with what she's done, doesn't feel she has to prove anymore. She got married, she's expecting. So that's fantastic news. And I've just heard that Naomi Osaka is also yes. expecting. We were all wondering about Naomi, you know, what had happened to her? Had she just fallen out of love with tennis? But that kind of explains, you know, why she's not been around so much as well. But another player who's struggled a little bit, you know, obviously we've seen her mental str struggles with herself and with everything that goes with being a tennis player trying to come to terms with it, sort of been a bit in and out on the circuit the last year and a half. But fabulous player, a champion. I hope we'll see her back. I don't think we'll see Ash Barty back. Yeah, really, really shocking when that happened. But I kind of, I have like mm. enormous respect for her in a way. For being like, I've done enough. I don't, I've got nothing to prove. Mm. I don't want to flog a dead horse. And I, I don't, I, I 
definitely did not want to call the goat who I'm going to go on to speak about a dead horse because of course you know that would be enormously disrespectful but it was a little bit sad in a way to see Serena Williams kind of limp out in the way that she did in the end she retired last year really sad for a lot of us because a we felt it was perhaps or well I speak for myself here I felt it was a little bit of a begrudging retirement B, I really wanted her to equal Margaret Court's record. And C, you know, I'll I'll miss her as a player because she is incredible. In terms of popularising the women's game, arguably she's had the biggest impact of a generation. Do you think the women's game will really miss her? Or do you feel confident that there's enough talent out there to fill that void? I, I think that Serena hasn't really been around very much for you know two or three years now, so the women's game has moved on somewhat. But if you're anywhere in the world and you say Serena, people who don't really even know about tennis know Serena. She is that bigger star, and she will do other things. Obviously, in her life, she's <laughs> she just loves creating different aspects of herself. I mean, we were always wanted to see what outfit she was going to wear yeah. at every Grand Slam. <laughs> what was she going to come out with yeah. next? You just never knew. So, yes, as a champion over, what, three decades, actually, going from, you know, she plays Steffi Graf, 98, 99. Wow. I think they played two matches. They're one all. So kind of end of one era, beginning of another. Two such fantastic champions. And how she didn't beat Margaret Court's record, I just don't know. Oh. That match against Vinci in the the US Open that semi-final I still can't get over that but that's sport for you I mean, it's just fabulous isn't it you never know oh uh, again you have to be like look look at what she achieved you know yeah. it feels a bit condescending in a way to be like oh if only she just equaled that record <laughs> but it's oh I don't know it's she did achieve so much and I think it is you can't really compare the era of tennis that she's played in with the era that Margaret Court played in. Yeah, so different, yeah. I mean, like, you know, Rod Laver and Roger Federer and, and the, you know, big three. It's very hard to compare eras like that because of travel, you know, what was available to everybody at the time. So, yes, but, you know, Serena did, she changed tennis. She definitely did. She was the one that everybody was trying to be as good as Serena was really something. If you could beat Serena in a Grand Slam in particular, you knew you played well. So she always kind of had a target on her back, I suppose. She she was the one. Mm. So, of course, she will be missed. Absolutely. But I'm glad to say that, you know, women's tennis is actually in a pretty good place at the moment with a number of players. When you look down, you know, and I was just looking at the list of seeds with obviously Shriantek, then you've got Anjabur. I mean, what a great story for the Arabic world that she has come on and played so well, final of, of Wimbledon. I mean, fantastic player, joy to watch. And as a person, she, everybody loves her on the tour. She, they really do. And then you've got, you know, a great mix of Sakari, the warrior, and Coco Goff and Sabalenka. Who knows <laughs> with her? She can be on a hot streak or a cold streak. You never know. Can be brilliant. Um, Pagula, as we said. And how about uh, Caroline Garcia at the end of last year? Yeah. 
what a comeback that was yeah. for, for herself and sort of shrugging off everything that, you know, had been on her shoulders and letting herself play and what an exciting brand of tennis she plays too. Finally, I want to ask you about something that's been in the news recently, a sort of controversial news story about the Professional Tennis Players Association, which is headed up by, I think, Novak Djokovic. Now, you were a professional Mm. player. What's your take on this? Is it a bad thing or is it just disrupting the status quo and obviously people don't like that? Was it just Djokovic? Is it it just (laughs) because... Some people don't like Djokovic. What do you think? I Do you know, there's just so many strands to tennis at the moment that it's, I don't think it's quite working at times when you've got the Grand Slams, the ATP, the WTA, you know, the players who are thinking they're not getting a slice of the pie that they should be. Uh, they not quite being... a big slice of the pie, don't they? They, they, mm. they do all right for uh, themselves. Well, I think so. Hey, you're, you're talking to the wrong person here. I, I came through a generation where we had to play every week and we had to play doubles and mixed at Grand Slams to earn enough money. So, look, I think there's prize money just sloshing about at the moment and players have too much and don't support the WTA and ATP enough in the smaller tournaments. And I know in my era that Martina and Chrissy, you know, they, those players and the ones before them, Billie Jean and all those players who made the tour, the WTA tour, played week after week after week. Martina and Chrissy played 80 finals against each other. Wow. That's what, you know, they were there for the smaller tournaments. They did their bit. And I'm not sure the players do their bit for the WTA at the moment but I digress a little about your question um, I can understand why they formed this sort of breakaway bit and Djokovic has been the spokesperson for it how it will go anywhere I'm just not sure there's just too many diverse bits of tennis you've got you know people who own tournaments who are also agents you Mm. You know, players are involved in, oh, my goodness, it's an absolute jumble at times. And I do wish, you know, tennis could come together. I'd love the men's and the women's to, to come together. I think that would be fantastic. I don't know why they they are separate still. Do you not think there's a danger that if they come together that then the women become overlooked? Or do you think that's happening now? There could be, but yes, I do kind of think that's happening now in a lot of the tournaments where men, there's a joint tournament and men are scheduled on the centre court still Mm. more often than women. You know, that still happens. I just think there could be a more united front, but I just don't think that will happen. There's too much power Mm. (laughs) spread throughout tennis. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think Djokovic doesn't mind stirring things up, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a bit like when when Taylor Swift took a moral stance against Spotify or whatever. You're a bit like, okay, I can understand for like the the little people. I can understand mm. why you've got to be in your bonnet about what you get paid by Spotify and and you know PRS and 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 whatnot. I can understand that because you know people should be paid for art, etc. People should be paid for sport, mm. etc. But I think it just. When it's Novak Djokovic, one of the wealthiest players there is, it it just, it feels a little bit like, oh, should you be the face of of this? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I think 
actually behind the scenes he is fighting for more prize, prize money to filter down. Mm. There has been a slight change in uh, the lower tournaments. So, you know, I've been at a tournament today at 25,000 where the prize money has gone up. Uh, it's the first time in something like 12 years, I think. So it's really difficult for the, the lower ranked players who are trying to make their way to a grand slam where the big money is. And yes, I think actually Novak Djokovic is fighting for those those players. So I think he is doing actually a good thing behind the scenes. But uh, as you say, <laughs> a lot of money at the top <laughs> that uh, keeps them all going, doesn't it? Joe, are you going to be commentating on this yes. on the Australian Open? Where will we find you commentating? I'm commentating for Eurosport. Excellent. And starting first day to last so I can't wait so I love I love doing the Australian I think it's going to be very hard to bet against Djokovic and Sriantec winning but always something strange happens in Australia I think it's the f- first Grand Slam and it comes very quickly after they've all had a bit of an off-season so some of them might have changed a few things in the off-season not quite there but also there's a lot of players playing quite well so gosh I can't wait I love it. <laughs> Excellent. Joe. where can our listeners follow you on Twitter to find out your hot takes on the tournament as the hot takes emerge? Absolutely, at Joe Jury on Twitter. I will be tweeting during the uh, two weeks. Just little bits and pieces of gossip and what's going on. So uh, enjoy it. I, I will be, that's for sure. And we'll see if, if anybody can beat Igor Shiontek. I'm not sure they can. Very exciting. Joe, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks, Jen. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film did we watch this week which finally made me understand the point of Zooey de Chanel? <laughs> <laughs> she does get the funniest line in this film, but she we'll really get does. onto that in a bit. This week, we watched black comedy The Good Girl, released in the US in August 2002 and in the UK in January 2003, making it 20. Sometimes it really does surprise me. I think it's with the newer films that I'm like, how can this be 20 years old? But anyway, written by TV screenwriter de jour, Mike White, and directed by Miguel Arteta, it's either a tragic comedy or a comic tragedy. And is yet another of those films that seems to have slipped into a surprising obscurity, making it hard to watch and even harder to find much info on. And I say surprising because it has an absolutely top draw cast that includes big names, indie favourites and some proper comedy heft. So I'm going to start by asking if either of you had seen this film before. No, no and not. I've still only seen part of it because <laughs> tricky to watch absolutely doesn't even cut it. What went on in my house last night trying to watch this. So I've seen 45 minutes of this film in the wrong order. So yeah, let's go. Great. I did actually see this before when it was at the cinema, but let's not think about 20 years ago. Anyway, the good girl of the title is Justine Last, played by Jennifer Aniston, a 30-year-old bored of her life in Texas. It was definitely an against-type role for Aniston, who credits this film with making her realise she could do a lot more than play Rachel Green or women who were essentially Rachel Green but with a different name. Fun fact, Aniston apparently wore ankle and wrist weights for weeks beforehand to perfect Justine's perpetual slump. 
Justine narrates her own story in a deadpan style, which can only be a homage to Mick. You'll likely know this because I made you watch it. Oh, I think if I hadn't been fighting with technical difficulties, maybe I'd have registered it. But it's very, very bad, Lance. Oh, it is very bad, Lance. Yes, it is. Yeah. Justine's married to her childhood sweetheart, Phil, played by John C. Riley, ah, a house painter who spends most of his time getting stoned with his best friend, Bubba. That's Tim Blake Nelson. His pot habit being the reason Justine believes that she has failed to fall pregnant. Her life changes when a new member of staff arrives at her place of work, which is one of those huge boxy discount stores run by Frank. That's John Carroll Lynch. The newcomer is Tom, played by Jake Gillenhall, who has changed his name to Holden after the main character of The Catcher in the Rye, which couldn't be more of a red flag if it was dry humping (laughs) another red flag. Right! (laughs) Gillenhall was a rising star when he made The Good Girl, and according to White, it was one of five films he made back-to-back after his breakout role in Donnie Darko. Justine recognises something in the younger man that goes beyond the general ennui that infects her small town and enters an affair that couldn't be more ill-advised if it was covered in petrol and dancing near an open flame. Right? Right? (laughs) Is Holden a free spirit or chronically depressed? Is everyone around her really oblivious to her indiscretion? Does she want to leave her safe but dull life after all? All these questions are answered over a pretty tight 93 minutes. But before we have a chat about it, let's look at the reaction to the good girl. In terms of box office, it made $17 million off an $8 million budget, which is pretty good. Mm -hmm. In terms of awards, it was nominated for four Independent Spirit Awards and won one. Best screenplay for White, who I should probably point out, also plays security guard Corny here. And I don't know why I want to say this, but the 2002 film Independent Spirit Awards were presented by John Walters. I bet that was a laugh, regardless of whether (laughs) they won or they didn't win, yeah. And in terms of reviews, it has 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw is going to get a special mention here for saying, and I quote, it's all very much out of the American Beauty rulebook, which I'm going to have to call out as a load of old bollocks, given that that is a film about a man in his 40s fantasising about a teenage girl, while this is about a woman entering a consensual relationship with a man who's less than a decade younger than her. Mm-hmm. But OK, Peter, if you say so. <laughs> On the other hand, Ella Taylor of LA Weekly said, quote, it's especially gratifying to see her, that's obviously Aniston, play a woman who's had it up to here with making nice and making do. Yep, she gets it. OK, lads, bearing in mind Mickey had some technical problems. So let me start by saying I think this film is just incredibly, incredibly well cast. So we should probably start with Jennifer Aniston. What did you make of her performance? Yeah, it's good. It's really good. It is against type and it must have been because I didn't see it at the time, but I remember the kind of films that she made before she then went and she kind of went on and made like a bunch of films a bit like this. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah, it would have been, I think, at the time, quite a departure from what she normally did. And it probably would have been quite shocking to people to see her in that role because her character is... Well, I mean, I question the morals of her character on, like, a lot. I think you're probably supposed to, right? So I think she's great in it. Yeah, really, really good. And she plays it really well. And it's interesting what it then must have done to her career. I think she's absolutely cracking in it. I think it's always really testament to the performance when you've got someone who is a big name but not only a big name but known for one particular Mm. character that within like a couple of minutes I wasn't thinking that's Jennifer Aniston I was thinking that's Justine 
yeah, so, yeah agree. she totally inhabits the character and just the the little touches i mean that's what acting is and she does it really well thinking about it though i don't know that this was the the role like i say that she thought was gonna you know get her out of that sort of rom-com cliched role i don't know that that was necessarily as successful a move as she'd hoped she still is in many people's minds rachel green or a variation of rachel green yeah, Possibly because this film wasn't so widely watched. But. Yeah, and also, I guess, because Friends is always on rotation somewhere. You can always watch it. It's not gone out of fashion. Like, kids are really into Friends, which, you know, fine. It is problematic now, and that, that gets discussed. But then it means that there's more people talking about Friends and all that. But also, I don't know if you've watched it. Isn't there a, a show that she's made pretty recently? Is it it's called The Newsreader or The Newsroom yeah. or something? Yeah. Uh, with Reese Witherspoon, um, not to be confused with Reese without a spoon, but with Reese Witherspoon. It's on Apple. Mm. Yeah. It's supposed to be very good and it, and it isn't a rom-com. I think she's kind of gone back to being a serious well, actor. She made a film in, I can't think now of really anything she's done. I remember that kind of like glut of films that she made in the immediate post-Friends era like rom-coms of I, I can't remember any of their There's names one called the long came all... polly that she did with ben mm. stiller but like i remember she made that glut of rom-coms at the time and then she kind of she made a film in 2014 called i think it was called cake or something like that which is quite dark where she's got like chronic pain and she's in like a support group and i think she d- then went for a period after this where she did a few films like that that were against type but I haven't seen her in anything for years, to be honest. I, I'm mostly what I hear about her now is stuff that she's talked about in interviews about mm. like her relationships and not having children and shit like that. Not shit like that. Shit that women get asked. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. She's an exquisite comic actress. Oh I think yeah, her timing is mm. spot on in Friends. She's the one I think who nails the punchlines and the funny lines best, and she's really funny in this, even though it's dark. Like her lines yeah. that are funny, the darkness, she, she absolutely nails the black comedy as well. She's great. Yeah. I think everybody else is incredibly well cast. You know, John C. Riley is obviously exceptionally good comedic actor, but you could see why she'd married him, but also you could see why she was she shouldn't have married him. He needed to sort of manifest both sort of types of man and he does Jake Gyllenhaal is exactly doing what he does best in this. John Carroll Lynch, I never know whether to trust him. So he's (laughs) like, you know, I'm never quite sure whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. I think everyone is cast brilliantly in this. I did say John C. Riley's done well for himself, eh? He looks so much older than Jennifer Aniston's character. And maybe it's because of stuff I've missed. And obviously I've read up on the plot and what happens. And I realise that Phil is very put upon and works it out by the end kind of thing and is accepting and kind and generous to her but in the bits I saw I wasn't convinced why she married him I didn't see that side of it I think what I mean is that he's supposed to be that guy who was possibly at some point quite good looking and popular and played sport and everything and then just went to seed that whole idea of you know those kids that are popular at high school are are not the kids Mm. that you know go off and do the best things with their life. Yeah, because she has the line where she says she didn't go to college because she thought if she went, she'd lose Phil. And I went, <laughs> literally just yeah. went, at the television. Rah. He looks a lot older than her, but he's not a lot older than her. He's only about four years older than her. Really? Yeah, I looked it up. I think she's 53 and he's 57. 
Wowzers. Obviously, Jake Gyllenhaal, this is one of the roles that kind of pushed him towards that kind of role, if that makes sense. When people realised he could do this, he could do like really sort of young man on the edge stuff. He almost had to play that too much. So in some ways you can feel like, oh God, is he doing that again? But actually, because this is 20 years old, this is actually kind of what kicked off that whole mm. thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I've got to admit, and this is a, it's all about personal preference, isn't it? But Jake Gyllenhaal has just always left me cold. I don't see the sort of heartthrob things that people Ooh, talk do. about him. Fine. No, exactly. And there are so many people who do, so many women, so many men who do. Fair Not dues. in this, mind you, but um, yeah. But yeah, I just and just his acting leaves me cold as well. I've never I'm never on board with his character as much. And as soon as Holden turned up, I was like, run away, run away. (laughs) So next question. I mean, obviously, I love Mike White. I love the way he writes. Did this make you laugh? Did you find it funny? Mm, Yeah, I did. I mean, not lol, 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 but it's funny when it means to be funny. It did make me laugh. And there are really funny bits in it. But fucking hell, it's pretty bleak as well. I mean, I know it's a it's a dark comedy. Like that's the whole point of it. But like, <laughs> there are two bits that make me laugh like crazy. The first one is Mike White gets to say it is when Corny invites her to the uh, yeah. Bible thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he says, "Other than the usual ways, we're not interested in scaring people," which is <laughs> so just lovely. an amazing line. But to me, the absolute highlight of it is Zoe Deschanel when she's doing up that old lady and she's got her <laughs> just so plastered because she's working on the makeup counter. And she just says in this incredibly dead fan voice, this is how they wear it in France. They call it Cirque de Face. <laughs> <laughs> it's so amazing. I didn't get to see that bit, but I read that line was mentioned in a few of the reviews I read before we were chatting about it. But I also loved her, fuck you very much. Sorry, what? Thank yeah. you very much. It's a line that could so easily just be rubbish, but she delivers it perfectly. She's great in this. When she gets on the thing and starts talking about shoving it up your pipes as well, that's very funny. <laughs> she's yeah, brilliant she's in cracking. this. Because I've never really seen her in anything where she didn't just do that like fucking awful manic pixie dream girl trope. Like, mm. and, and she's so good in this. I was like, oh, I actually really enjoy you as a more like straight comedy kind of role i don't think i've ever seen her do anything like that before i think like mike white stuff it's really beautifully observed as well you know john c Riley, phil and bubba on the sofa kind of a non-cartoon version of beavis and butthead you're like yeah Mm. that's just so beautifully observed and you can absolutely understand why she'd be like oh for fuck's sake this is so interminably dull but yeah there's some really lovely comic touches in there gwen gwen i mean not long for this world, poor Gwen, uh, after those blackberries. But she's brilliant as well. She's really well mm. done. And she's just funny because she's annoying. In a way that the funny counters the annoying. Yeah. She went on to play Piper's mum in Orange is the New Black. Ah, yes. That's Might right. be where people recognise yeah. her from. So Justine does get called a good girl at one point in this. Mickey might not have seen this. Oh, I saw it's when she, she grasses him up. And grassing him up is not even the worst thing she considers doing. At one point, she considers killing him with the aforementioned Blackberries. Obviously, it's an ironic title, but I wondered, do you have any empathy with her? Not a lot. Because all of the things she does, you have a, a degree of empathy for her before, you know, before shit starts to escalate. But Holden is clearly a very damaged young man with a lot of problems and she can't be held 
completely responsible for what happens to him. And and the way he behaves towards her is at times, like, not very pleasant to see. Mm. But all of the decisions she makes are made to get herself off the hook. All of the decisions she makes, the the ones that result in, like, terrible things happening, are for her own benefit. Like, everything she does is for herself. She doesn't do anything for anyone else. And terrible things happen as a result of that. Yeah, she always has her own agency, which means I find it very hard to have any sort of sympathy for her. I see, it's interesting, because I think the fact that she actually does start making decisions, this is kind of liberating for her. I mean, they're terrible decisions, but at least... <laughs> At least she's in control of her own life for the first time in however long. She actually does grab hold of this. That's possibly the only agency she's ever had. So I'm conflicted about how I feel about it. Why do you think that's the only agency she's ever had? Yeah, she took I a don't choice. Understand. Yeah. For example, she says she made the choice not to go to college because she didn't want to lose her boyfriend. That's a choice. Yeah. That's agency. Mm. Maybe this is the first time mm. she has been the person that drove her decisions, not Phil, you know, not something else. These are decisions she's made for herself. Well, she should stop. They're terrible. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, obviously they're terrible and she does terrible things, but she probably lives more life in that fortnight than she probably ever has beforehand, if that makes sense. Yeah. And actually, I don't have much sympathy for her, but that's not to say I didn't quite like her. I don't think she's utterly unlikable. I'm like, oh, mate, you don't want to do that. I understand where they're coming from. She's well-rounded enough that I'm not surprised or it seems really out of character for her to be out of character, if that makes sense. You're like, okay, this is the setup. And she seems bored titless. Like, why is she trying for a baby with a man that she clearly doesn't love anymore? Does she feel like these are her only options? Probably and then something else comes along and while everyone's shouting, run away, run away, <laughs> she's like, oh, well, what, what's the worst that could happen? I yeah. think she's really depressed as well. They're both chronically depressed, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. That's Which the I suppose That's is like each other. the only thing that makes me a bit like, I don't know, I think that's probably one of the only, like she's making terrible choices because I think she just wants to feel something, doesn't she? Mm. For a long time, it's as basic as she just wants to feel a young man's cock, though. That is like the overriding desire for a while. Do you think? I'm not sure about that. Once she makes the decision, and this is the one that actually I think that she's most manipulated into, is when he does his letter with the blood on it. Oh, for fuck's sake, mate, just Mm. let him go. Don't see him Mm. again. And she kind of goes to talk to him, having rejected him once, and then obviously they end up in bed. Once she's had him, or they've had each other, she does get, like, lust vision. That's all she's interested in, because it feels, like, exciting and an adventure for her. And to me, the way he acts is as manipulative as what Bubba does. He's really manipulative, like, without a shadow of a doubt. Like, the way he behaves towards her is not okay either. Um, No. And like you say, Bubba is, he, he has created a reason for himself that he is doing the right thing, but he is quite the, um, well, the, I don't know, rapist almost in that oh, sense, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, because he doesn't really give her a lot of choice, does he? Although I have to say that they, when they undercut that, when Bits comes and steals the sheet off him, it is fucking hilarious. <laughs> Did you not see that bit? It, Bits, it is dog. unexpected and it is quite <laughs> funny. Good, I missed the bit with the dog in it. I did read in Roger Ebert's review, he says, 
that like then she realizes that Bubba would never have told Phil because he just loves Phil too much. He wouldn't want to hurt him. And I was like, hang on, Roger. Well, he wouldn't fuck his wife then, would he? Yeah. Well, like I say, it's like that Peter Bradshaw thing. Yeah. Like Peter Bradshaw think American Beauty and this are like, I've got the same theme. And you're Mm. like, what the fuck? Not at all. But I think that Bubba has constructed this narrative. Like, I'm not excusing Bubba at all, at all, at all. I think that Bubba has constructed a narrative that makes him believe whatever the fuck it is he believes, because it is actually quite hard to tell, to be honest. I think in his mind, he hasn't done anything wrong to Phil. Oh, you mean he's he's a... Arsehole who's justified it. I mean, yeah, join the back of the queue. <laughs> There's loads of that. Like I said, I'm not for a second defending him. Okay, I've got two more questions. The first one's just for Mickey. Having watched a film, albeit half of a film, in which the lead character is a woman, and it's written by Mike White, how's your feeling on the scale of things about how successful his writing is for women? I think the character of Justine is really well written, yeah. I think it, it's great. She's really well-rounded, And, you know, standard Mike White misery there as well. But, you know, she is really well-rounded. She has agency. What she uses that for is, you know, debatable. Uh, Not for good. She doesn't use it for good. She's really interesting and she gets some great lines. Yeah, I think it's cracking writing. There's no happy prostitutes having manipulated themselves into some cash like happens all the time, skipping off into a cheery future. So, yeah, it scored mega points for that. (laughs) Great. Okay, so final question, rated or dated? I think I would say rated. I did find it quite an uncomfortable watch, if I'm honest, but I think everyone in it is brilliant and, you know, it's it's funny, it's well written, but yeah, I did find it a bit uncomfortable. Mick? With the caveat that I saw 45 minutes of it in the wrong order, <laughs> um, still, still rated, I was quite gutted as well as frustrated by technology not to be able to watch the rest of it whether the other 45 minutes in the correct order would have changed my view we will never know Quite. what about you i thought it was great the first time i saw it and yeah i thought it was great again it's actually quite surprising particularly not just given that it's got jennifer aniston and and uh, jake gillenhall in it and john c Riley, but that mike white is now the flavour of uh, of choice for writing at the mm-hmm. moment, that it's not more widely available because it is actually really good. Maybe he could remake it with Jennifer Coolidge as, like, everyone. Yeah. Just as everyone. Yeah. <laughs> what are we watching next week? I'm not sure how this is going to play out. I'm, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Next week, we're watching Boogie Nights. <laughs> Talking of young men's cocks. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.